Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. Hi, I'm Brett from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're excited to share a special conversation between Marilyn Burns and Lucy Calkins about Marilyn's new digital math interview tool, Listening to Learn. They discuss the importance of listening, a value that is central to both Marilyn and Lucy's work. Marilyn Burns is one of today's most highly respected mathematics educators. Over the course of almost 60 years, Marilyn has taught children, led professional development sessions, spoken at conferences, contributed to professional journals, written a dozen books for children, and created more than 20 professional development publications for teachers and administrators. She is also a co-author of Do the Math, which is now available from Heinemann. Lucy Calkins is the founding director of the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project at Columbia University. She is also the author, co-author, and series editor of the Reading, Writing, and Phonics Units of Study series, which are an integral part to classroom life in tens of thousands of schools around the world. Here now is Marilyn and Lucy. Well, I've been waiting for this product of Marilyn's for a long time. You know, she's been she's been consumed with it, working on it for years. So I'm very excited that it's coming out now. And I guess one of the reasons that I feel a kinship to it is that, you know, my first book was Lessons from a Child. And I remember someone introducing me long ago, 30 years ago, and saying, this is Lucy Calkin. She's the author of Lessons for a Child. And I said, therein lies the story. Because ultimately, this is about taking lessons from children. And I think we, we all remember Don Graves, after that big study that we did all those years ago, Don Graves took all of our data and went off to Scotland to Marilyn, you may not know this story, but he went off to Scotland to, to spend a year sabbatical writing about the children that, that we studied. He and I studied together for two years. And he had all this data all around his, his shepherd's hut where he was living for that year. And the shepherd in the next hut came over to visit him and saw all this data, all this student work everywhere and said, you know, Don, what are you doing? And Don says, I'm writing about children. And the Shepherd said, oh, Don, wouldn't she rather write a love story? And Don said, this is a love story. So, so Marilyn, give a, you know, catch me up on, I mean, you know, I've known the products coming, but, but help me to understand what it really is and what the role of interviewing is that, that you're so excited about. The story about Don Graves is wonderful because his book has been on my shelf for years. Because even though I've been completely immersed in the math world, his work spoke to me because his work was about listening to children. And I have a closet that I'm almost terrified to open because of the facts of student work that I revisit from time to time to help my thinking. So it's all about, for me, understanding how students think, how students make sense of math, how they come into the world of numeracy the way you're anxious to help kids come into the world of literacy. And so for years, I've been honing my teaching I've been listening to students. I've been looking at their work. And then when I started having conversations with students, I realized 
how many times I made erroneous assumptions, how many things I missed, and I learned how much talking I was doing as the teacher rather than listening to students to get their stories. So I have maybe similar to Dongas, I've fallen in love with the process. So, I mean, I don't think I would really know, I guess I would imagine if it's like a kid's doing, you know, nine plus 14, you might say, how did you go about solving that problem? Is that the main question you're asking or what, what is it you ask? The main question is, we ask a question. It could be a problem like, what is nine plus 14? It could be a word problem. It could be a problem where I ask them to compare two fractions and a variety of kinds of problems, but they're all mental math, no paper, no pencil. And I listen to the answer. I never give feedback as to whether the answer is correct or incorrect, but the next line is, how did you figure that out? Or how do you know? Tell me more. So they tell me more, I zip it up and I listen and give them time, holding their attention, curious, and not only curious, but generous to really believe that they are trying to make sense and communicate with me. So we have a conversation about a problem that could be as simple as how much is nine plus 14, but it's their thinking that I'm paying attention to. So is there... um you know, we talk about architecture of mini lessons and architecture of conferences in the teaching of writing. Is there an, a predictable architecture to how a math interview would go? Yeah. Yes. And the way we structured listening to learn, we have 10 interviews. Each interview has 12 questions. There are word problems sprinkled throughout. There are genres of questions, but the protocol is ask the question, hear the answer, then follow up with how did you figure it out and then listen. So the protocol is fairly accessible to teachers. The challenge is, though the product is called listening to learn, the challenge is learning to listen. Because when a child explains, their language is usually imprecise or often imprecise. It's not exactly what I was expecting to hear, but I put that aside and listened to the child. And then on the program, there's a list of explanations that we have gotten from thousands of kids that we have asked these same questions. And you see, is there a match? So you have to not only listen as a teacher, you match it to one of the explanations we gave. And that's the information that Listening to Learn captures and creates information for you to help you analyze and interpret what the experience was. So, so Marilyn, we have in, in our reading curriculum, we have a skill like, let's say, prediction. And we basically say if you're, that if you're predicting like a second grader, it might sound like this. If you're predicting like a third grader, it sounds like this, a fourth grader. So we have a learning progression, it's called where we sort of show how a skill like prediction, you know, looks for grade two, three, four. But in any case, then a teacher is able to listen and say, okay, so that's, that's kind of like a grade two prediction. Let's say they're, they're predicting what's going to happen. And then a higher level prediction would be not only what's going to happen, but how it's going to happen. So a big way that teachers learn how to teach is they listen to think where on the learning progression is it, and then they look at what's the next step and then that's what they teach. Is that basically what you've done? Well, it's similar in a way. First of all, the progression that informs listening to learn are the numerical reasoning strategies that we want kids to have access to. And that progression we provide to teachers. For example, when you're counting, little kids will count on often using their fingers. So if they were doing four plus nine, which is smaller than the numbers you suggested, they might start with nine and count on 10, 11, 12, 13. That's appropriate when students are learning. And that's appropriate when the numbers are small, but it's not appropriate strategy later on in the progression. 
So we have a progression of strategies that we want teachers to be familiar with and we present them. But we've also found the numbers matter. Four plus nine is a problem that gives us information from students at a certain grade level. It's not something I'm gonna ask a fifth grader. Well, I might. I might say, how would you explain this to a second grader? But, but basically the numbers matter. So that the same progression of strategies exists, but the problems that we ask kids to solve depend on the capacity they have for their own number sense. So that we see some strategies like the counting on strategy, something that we're not even interested in capturing about fourth and fifth graders. But we have things like using 25 as a benchmark, which isn't even accessible to young children. So this progression, it's not a lot of strategies for addition and subtraction. There are basically nine numerical reasoning strategies that we explain and present to teachers. And there are four different interviews, numbers within 10, 20, 100 and 1,000, all mentally. So the problems are problems that are reasonable to do mentally. Like I'm not gonna to say to a child, okay, figure out in your head how much is 327 plus 752 plus 521. We, we, give, we say, okay, if I had 825, how much more do I need to add to it to get to 1,000? That's possible mentally. And that's something which will use some of those strategies like benchmarks of 29 using multiples of 10 as benchmarks. So the strategies are the essence of this. And the, the children's reasoning give us access into the strategies that they are able to use. So, so, what, so what your product is interesting, again, I'm kind of comparing it to, the, to reading assessments because in reading assessments, we have to put forward a passage with questions about it. You can't just, I mean, you can take these things and apply them to any book, but, it, but to assess, it, it's helpful to have a passage and you have watched a lot of kids work with the same passage. So basically your tool includes the problems that kids you would have kids do, um, and then the ways to make sense of what kids do with those problems and how that can inform kind of like where you think this child is in a progression of math work. Is that is that sort of- That's right, because choosing the, the right passage is important. If you choose a passage that's too difficult, you're not gonna learn. If you choose the passage that's too easy. So in each interview, the first three questions are kind of benchmark questions. Like if the child can't answer the first three questions, correctly and with some confidence and explain their reasoning, then we drop down an interview. Because, you know, it's interesting. I I have, like for addition, we have four interviews. If I'm in a typical third grade class, I will typically wind up using three of the interviews with students. And I may start with a particular one thinking, well, numbers within 20 make sense. And then I'll adjust after the first three. So that guides it. So in one way, I think I've taken all that thinking that I've done kind of intuitively when I first worked interviewing and then made it say, wait a second, I've got to explain my thinking and make this accessible so teachers will have access to it, be inspired by it, be excited by it, and learn about their students. And, and how do you imagine teachers using this tool? Is it beside the bed? Is it in the classroom? Is it in a summer week-long institute? Or how, how will it be used? Well, you know, my entire career, as yours in a major way, is all about professional learning. So basically, I see in one way, the tool is a way to enhance your own professional learning about math. Here's my dream. Whatever assessment you're using for reading, to find out about your students before you start teaching. I don't understand how you can start teaching until you know who your students are. Tack this math on this. Tack this 10 minutes of math on the end. So you'll learn about your students mathematically as well. So in, I know that I have teachers who are 
comfortable and find it important to interview their kids in reading, they already know about the process. They've already bought into and accepted the benefits of the process. I now want them to see that same benefit in the world of mathematics. So how does so, this so, so this tool that you've developed, you can like you could uh, a district could buy it on Monday and on Tuesday, a teacher could take a piece of it and work with a kid. You know, I they could because some teachers are the kind of I'll dive in, just do it. Some teachers are trepidatious. I want to think about it. But we have videos, we have learning labs for teachers, we have every access point in. You can learn by yourself. You can learn with colleagues. You can just barge in, and you can look at tons and tons of video. And you can read the blogs that my colleague Lynn and I are writing and producing. And so, so ideally, it would be that there's a couple, there's a day or two of professional development at the start of the year where people are using the resources that you've put forward to kind of immerse themselves. Ideally, a coach spends more time on this and then decides which parts of it go for which you know groups of your teachers and so forth. And then there's a day of professional development where people use mine your resources to do some PD. And then they begin working with their math kids, doing some of these interviews. Now, now I got another big question. I don't know if you're ready for the, but okay, I do the interview. What does that have to do? I've got a curriculum in math with all these books and stuff. So why am I bothering to assess if I've already got a curriculum that is non-flexible? Well, my snarky answer is we're teaching students. We're not teaching the curriculum. Students first. Your curriculum to me is a default path of the content and the goals for your instruction. I've never met a teacher who didn't enhance, rethink, back up and teach. They have to make it their own. Whatever program they're using, the program is there to guide their instruction. Right. So you're, you're talking to teachers about how to adapt and, 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 and infuse more into their curriculum. And also, here's my goal. I, we would talk about inclusive and including all children. What I mean by that is the lessons that I offer, I have two criteria. They need to be accessible to all students. And I will know from these interviews whether I need to do some work, perhaps ahead of time with a, with a small group, or how I might have to adjust it to give access. Access for all opportunity for kids to go further, opportunities for me to learn who I need to confer with. So I think that that's so very, very, very important is to, to making that decision. What about the whole idea of ability groups and all of that? I am interested in building a community of learners. So there are things that I want to do together. And just like when I think about like your mini lessons, they're really something you do with the whole class. And kids will, will tune in in some way. We in the math world have our number talks where we do something short to give everybody access from which I'm looking and learning so that when they go off to their work, when, they, when you go off to do their writing work and we go off to their menu work or their math workshop work, we know that who to confer with. And, and sometimes I don't, I, I'm very leery of ability groups and labeling students. I'm more interested in giving them access to the thinking that I want them to do and in a way that makes sense. So that that's where the numbers matter. If I'm doing a, a if I'm playing a game with kids, whether I tell them to use four digit numbers or two digit numbers, it's the thinking, it's the strategic thinking, it's the making sense that is the essence to all of it. So it's nimble, you know, teaching is not easy. And sometimes people think teaching math is easy because the answer is, is right. But the answer is just the starting place. You've got to understand how these kids are reasoning. Do you see yourself, I mean, I feel as if what you really will want to have is, a, is communities of math coaches coming together. And, you know, I really like my office hours 
So once a month I have these office hours and people just come on and ask any old question. And I feel as if you should, with this product, you should have office hours so that people who are trying it can, you know, come. And because I just think that the conversations that will happen between schools and particularly between both the math coaches and then the math specialists, because in some elementary schools now, there's teachers who just teach math and science, you know, they become the specialists. I, I wish that didn't happen, but it is happening. But I think those teachers, you know, could really come to understand the field of math, the the world of math, the the thinking that a math, a real math teacher should be doing, you know, in a way, that's what this could give them access to. But I feel like it would be a community of practice for those educators would be just beautiful. You know, I agree because the two things that we've done together when I came and was a guest on your supper club, which was wonderful, and also your Saturday reunion, we had time for teachers to ask me questions. And questions were so important for me to hear the level at which they were concerned. And some very concerned with small issues, some very concerned with larger issues. But this is a great idea because I, I learn from listening to students. I can also learn from listening to teachers. No, it, would be a, it would be a beautiful thing. And I, and I do think that the teachers are going to help teach both you and me some of these crosswalks that we've been exploring. Because I mean, we get together and we try to think about how is it the same and how is it different, teaching math, teaching reading and writing. But I think that that ultimately the teachers will figure that out and they will come back and say to us, you know, no, you don't realize there's these other things. Um, and we're talking here in Listening to Learn about arithmetic. I've, you've heard me say that the third R, reading, writing, arithmetic, I want to change it to reading, writing, and reasoning. That's what Listening to Learn is all about. But basically we're talking about anything that any adult should be able to do. So it's not scare I hope it's not scary math. I know math is scary to people. This is really numbers, numbers within our grasp and ways to think about numbers in our heads. And I think that it's that way. What, what grade levels does this, how low does it go? It starts with kindergarten or even pre-K and it goes up. And so the last ones are fractions and decimals. So it's, it's way up there. So any kid through middle school, you know something, I've used this with adult friends of mine, and it's, I learned something from them. I say to adults, okay, how do you add 99 plus 99 plus 5? And everybody goes, humph. And I get so many different answers. We ask that in our interview five, but we ask adults. So the conversation is just about honoring our own way of thinking. I have to confess that when you were coming on Supper Club, I worried you'd give me a math problem. <laughs> I learned not to give you math problems. I remember when we were in the Adirondacks together and you gave me that problem. About I know, you froze. Or, you know, oh, it was so scary. My heart's pounding. I'm sweating. <laughs> got the right answer. But it was so interesting. When you got the right answer a particular way, I'll never forget the problem. It was like 99 plus 14. And you figured it out. You lined it up in your head. You saw it. You got the right answer. And I said, I just went 100 plus 13. And your light bulb went on. <laughs> <laughs> you're using 100 as a benchmark. And, and I said, uh-huh. So uh, that comes out for us. So kids will develop this. And, you know, we all have, we're very tender. We all have our fears. You know, I, here's my fear. I've been teaching remotely and I go, oh, I'm not good enough for this. The kids are wiggling. I see their forehead. I can't hear them. They're, it's, you know, I, I still have teaching nightmares. Every teacher I've met has teaching nightmares. So we're all tender and we have to be there to support each other in the way we want teachers to support their students. But I think what you've made is a tool that really can help people, help teachers to encompass the bigness of teaching math. And I think that people make teaching math into a little thing. And 
that this is big, important life work. And being somebody who, you know, not, what I know about teachers is, is, you know, a lot of teachers are looking for ways to just, I mean, they, they've come into this field because because it's, it's, it's a work of the heart and of the mind, because it feels so enormously important. And there's ways in which schools can grind people down. And I think teachers are looking for ways to recover the majesty of, of teaching at its, at its finest and at its richest, um, to really, you know, really be all in in the profession and in the mission of math and of, of literacy and of, you know, whatever the teaching is. So I think, I think your tool is about recovering the, the scope and grandeur and bigness and depth of teaching math. So it's, it's, I want to inspire teachers to tackle this with, with curiosity and joy and then to bring that into their students. Because, and I want them to use the skills they do have. If a teacher feels completely comfortable teaching literacy, what are the things you feel comfortable with? What are the things you love to do? We can do that in math. So they don't, it's not like math becomes something completely separate, not related to and different in, in basic ways they're the same. We're all about helping kids grow from where they are to where they could be. There was a time when I imagined that, that I could take on math education um, just because so many of the people that work with me have, are passionate about math. They love math. And I do think that the field of math education, it, it, needs, it needs some new breath of, of energy. Um, and it's interesting because you see it in the scholars. When I meet with you and Phil Darrow and you know others, there's like this, this electric um, energy, but it doesn't always, it, it hasn't sort of encompassed the field in the way that it should. It feels like the scholars are on fire doing this. And sometimes in the field, it's a little more follow the program. And that's why I think I've devoted my whole life to staying in the classroom, going into the classroom and talking to teachers about what I've learned, telling my stories. I think the thing about story, which you began in our conversation, is so important that what do I actually do face to face with a class of 25 students? And you saw that. We, we were together that day in San Francisco. We took turns. It was really an incredible, impactful day. It was, yes, it was fun and it was important. So how do I say to the kids, I am interested in you and together we can do this. And what's the this? It's not just getting the answer. It's not learning how to cross out the zeros, divide, subtract, multiply, and bring down. It's about thinking, reasoning, and making sense. Let's get to work. Thanks to Marilyn Burns and Lucy Calkins for their time today. To learn more about Marilyn's work, visit her website at MarilynBurnsMath.com or by following her on Twitter at MBurnsMath. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.